Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. I've got Darcy with me. Saturday morning. How you feeling, Darcy? I'm feeling pretty good. Actually, I literally just got off the bike um, when you when you texted me about uh, being ready to record. So um, a little sweaty. Got my got my towel here ready because I'm sweating all over the place. <laughs> but uh, first Saturday of college football officially. So got that on mute in the background. So yeah, that's pretty good day. It's a little odd, isn't it? Just I mean, are there fans in the stands? Like, what's the not in the game that I'm watching? And I. Like some schools are setting max capacity, like Auburn set max capacity at like 25%. So it's not going to be anything like it has been in the past. Like it's going to be completely different. I don't think they're going to get through a whole season. Um, we've already seen games being pushed back and postponed because players are testing positive and um, having to go on quarantine. So I'm just taking what I can get right now. Yeah. It's very odd. I, I just I wasn't sure how that was going to play out, how they were going to run it, whether it was going to go all the way through, whether they were actually going to do it. I mean, just with the craziness that's going on right now. Yeah, I feel like I could go on a rant about it. it I don't think they should be playing it. I think it's not safe. Um, and I think it's everything we're seeing right now. I mean, from college athletics to, you know, kids moving into college dorms and not college is not making decisions about whether or not they're going to go online. I mean, to me, it just reeks of wanting to cash paychecks on the part of the colleges and not actually being concerned about the students or the athletes or um, the faculty or staff or anything like that. So I'm kind of irritated with it, but at the same time, college football's on. I'm going to watch it, so I guess I'm kind of a hypocrite. I don't know, but I don't think we're going to get through a whole season. Um, it was interesting. I saw some girls working out for, I don't know if it was um, UCLA or Stanford or one of them with masks on. Like mm -hmm. playing with masks on. Yeah. Um, Auburn volleyball is practicing with masks on right now. I don't think that's healthy. That's not bad. At all. It's not unhealthy for I, you. I don't no. think they should be practicing if they, if they have to wear masks. They should just um, put it off because I just don't think that it's good to breathe with a mask on when you're doing that kind of strenuous physical activity. It's not bad for you. Physiologically, it's not bad for you. It's not unhealthy. It's, it, it's irritating for sure, but it's not bad for you. It's not unhealthy. And it's not risky. But um, to the point that, that they should just not be. How do I know that? Because I'm getting a PhD in kinesiology. <laughs> so wearing that mask over your face and breathing in your own carbon dioxide as you're doing heavy strenuous. But you're not breathing in 100% of your expired. Well, first of all, your, your expired air is not... 100% carbon dioxide. Second of all, you're not breathing in 100% of your expired air. So you are still getting oxygen flow and you are still letting that carbon dioxide that you are expiring um, be released. So it's like, it's not a fully, the masks aren't fully restrictive. It's just a protective measure. It's like a prophylactic measure, basically. Like a condom over your face. <laughs> yeah, but I like it, a condom that, that has like, that, that has like, well, that's what prophylactic means. <laughs> protective <laughs> but like it's like i mean it's not exactly like a condom because it's still letting air in and out and like that would be a really bad condom <laughs> i'm sorry i know this isn't <laughs> funny i know this isn't a laughing matter so like as soon as you said that i was like oh like condom for your face <laughs> well, but that's what prophylactic means so i mean i did use it correctly but anyway um no it's it's not bad for you it's irritating i've gone into the work to the gym and worked out in a mask and it sucks i don't like it but it's not unhealthy okay I don't know. So. It's a big, bad, scary world out there right now. And yeah. And I mean, I agree that like 
taking all these measures. At, at least they're taking these measures if they're going to have to play. But, like, I just don't think we should be having athletic like gathering I mean especially when you think about like volleyball and like high school volleyball how many tournaments did we go to where you're just around so many people so like yeah it's gonna I think we're gonna see a big big increase in 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 numbers but you know you're touching it's all about that same things that you know you can't sterilize the ball like dozens of people are touching that freaking ball every minute and you know, the mm-hmm. parts of the court and the net and all that other stuff. Well, hopefully you're not touching the net, but like, uh, I just think it would be hard to like maintain any kind of sterile environment when you've got that sort of a situation. And that's why they're restricting the number of people that they have there to like the only, only the absolute necessary people. And then for football, 25% of the fans, but, um, and I think like they're still doing some fans for other sports, but the, I mean, the idea is like referees and coaches and athletic trainers and all of that, those people, they are all supposed to be wearing a mask. Um, the players, I don't believe, are, ha- are required to play in a mask. But I was watching, yeah, so I think I was watching tennis and some football and some other things last night, and there weren't fans in any of the stands. They were like those electronic right. images of people that they the were. The virtual ones. I don't know how yeah. I feel about that. It's very odd. It's it's weird. I mean, I suppose the world can't stand still and wait for it to end, yeah. but it just doesn't seem like it's the same. I I don't I'm not in any way tempted, inspired or otherwise motivated to watch any sort of sports. But you're not really a sports person to begin with. Like you're like not like yeah, I am. We watched stuff before. Right, but like but like I watched, you know, Serena Williams play tennis. Like, I'm, I'm a big fan of hers, so, like, I always want to watch her matches. Right, but, like, but there are people... Football? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of the Seahawks, but, like, I don't I don't want to watch it now. I have no desire to watch right. it. Right, there are people, I mean, like me, like, if there's football on, I'm going to be watching it, college football. I mean, there's people, like, that, that are literally, like, if there's sports on, I'm going to be watching it regardless of whatever it is. So, for those people, I mean... I'm just appreciate like I don't know it's it's weird I, I'm gonna watch college football because it's on I already don't watch the NFL I have issues with the NFL but um yeah but I mean I don't know today we have an update on a couple of different things that we previously did episodes on uh, we covered the Lori Vallow case Lori Vallow Daybell case originally on the episode that we did on June 14th and there has been an update in that case Lori Vallow I guess has entered a not guilty plea surprise surprise um, she's being charged with conspiracy to, conspiracy to hide the children's remains. JJ and Tylee, 7 and 17, disappeared last year in 2019 um, and were discovered June of this year, on June 9th, on Chad Daybell's property. As I don't think we mentioned that in our previous episode, did we? I think we did do an update after the remains were found, um, but maybe before they were officially identified. I think we talked about yeah. that. But yeah. there's still no charges for the in the deaths of these children, correct? No, it's just for conspiracy hmm. to hide their remains or hiding the remains, which to me is very interesting. This That's has all been peculiar. filed in the Idaho Madison County Magistrate Court. And as I mentioned, the kids disappeared in 2019. Um, the trial was held via a five minute Zoom hearing, which is really interesting to me. Interesting. The transition um, that they're now doing it through Zoom. Yeah. Um, The jury trial for this is set for April 2nd, 2021. But like to your point earlier, like 
Nothing has been filed for murder or for like anything related to the deaths other than hiding the bodies. That doesn't make have any sense they, to me. Have they completed autopsies on the children? I have not seen anywhere. Do we know their official cause of death? I'm wondering if that may be why they haven't filed charges yet. I mean, and, and maybe they're just waiting to, for a full investigation because I'm sure that because they found the kids right. on his property that they've got to kind of take that property apart piece by piece and just like really mm-hmm. like analyze everything and get the crime scene investigators in there to kind of figure out everything that's going on. Plus, you've got certain characters in this that have since died, like Lori Vallow's brother. Mm-hmm. So... I think this is a case that's going to unwind very slowly. And then given that, you know, you've got COVID going on too, you've got, you know, the Mm -hmm. inability, I think, to rapidly do anything, right? So she was in custody when the children were found, and then they took Chad Daybell into custody after that? Is that correct? Yeah. As soon as they found those bodies June 9th, they pulled him in and arrested him. Okay, so he was free up until that point, basically. Yeah. I believe she was in custody because she was failing to produce the children. Right. The court basically she was arrested her, in Hawaii produced. or something, right? Yeah, I thought that they picked yeah. her up there, but they hadn't I, done anything with him because he was right. not under suspicion yet, which doesn't make any damn sense to me. If these two are married and have been together, like he's got to have something to do with it, right? I guess they ha- didn't have like enough probable cause or something to hold him, maybe. I don't know. That's just the whole thing, and then they're they're reinvestigating the death of his previous wife of his, his wife, wife before right. Lori because she suspicious the circumstances behind her death are very suspicious to them right. as well so it, this is going to be like a long tangled thing yeah yeah I yeah. think it's going to unwind super slowly and I think that we're going to kind of because of the COVID thing as well mm-hmm. that you know who knows if that trial will actually go forward on the date that they say it is but I mean you do have right. a right to even with even with COVID, you'd have a right to a, a speedy trial, right? Constitutionally speaking, within a reasonable right. amount of time. And so they can't hold her for that long before she starts to have constitutional issues, right? And they, they are still doing, I mean, they are still doing hearings virtually. I know that they're doing that. Um, yes. I don't know if they're doing the like full on criminal, you know, trials like with uh, via Zoom, but but maybe that's what will happen. I don't know. But yeah, it'll be, I it'll be interesting. Should. Yeah, you do. I mean, what's the difference between a live right. and, a, and a computer computer trial? I just don't see. Can you think of any reason why somebody would be able to say that it's not fair to have that? Um, versus the only thing I could think of, and again, like I I don't know. Like you obviously know more about this than I do, but the only thing I could think of would be like if the if they felt there was some kind of advantage or, to the jury seeing the the testimony in person. The person. Uh-huh. That's the only thing I could think of, but I don't know. I don't know. Or having the right to question your accusers, maybe. I don't know. There's mm. there's a constitutional right to be able to mm-hmm. address the person who's accusing you in a court of law. And I'm not even talking. I'm not talking about this particular case, but right. someone right. who might be potentially testifying against her, and you have a constitutional right to be able to confront those people in a court of law, and maybe right. they would say something about that being on video isn't necessarily being able to confront, but that's like fully cross examined really or something. Long stretches. Yeah. Those are really yeah. long stretches in the right. constitutional issue. Um, and I think that, you know, in order to keep the trial moving at a pace, that's going to be within their constitutional rights to a speedy trial that mm-hmm. you have to do that with the rampage of the COVID virus lately. Right. Like we, I mean, there's so many things that like 
were unanticipated when like in, back in 1791, you know, when like yeah. when they were writing the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you think about the diff- the difference now and like people keep saying, well, the, the founders didn't intend this. Yeah. Well, we are in just this territory that they could have never imagined. Well, that's why it's a living document and we have yeah. amendments. Exactly. Because I mean, they intended it to be fluid. Yeah. With the rights of the people adjusting mm-hmm. as needed for what they need, because clearly the rights when we came here to America mm-hmm. were different than they thought the rights needed to be when we were in England. So, or France or whatever country. Right. So I think that they intended for the people to dictate what they needed for their own government, not for a group of people to dictate for us right. what we need necessarily. Representatives for us that, that represent our yeah. opinion is what they wanted us to have. But again, that's a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah. But I was gonna say that's a that's a huge Seriously. debate that we could be having too, which I'm wholly unqualified <laughs> no, to have I that conversation. Got, but you have a lot of knowledge. <laughs> A lot of things. <laughs> but anyway, um, next topic. Um, Elizabeth Holmes is in the news again lately. Um, is she finally going to go to trial? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh. Originally, her we talked about her in episode um, from July 5th. And mm-hmm. we talked about her past and the company, Theranos. But her lawyers reportedly said that they um, are going to possibly offer up evidence of a mental disease or defect this week. Interesting. Um, So a federal judge then ordered her to be examined by U.S. government experts. So they have to sit her down. What they proposed was getting her in front of a psychologist and psychiatrist chosen by the government Mm -hmm. for 14 hours over two days. And it would all be recorded on video. Interesting. And, of course, as soon as she put forward that she was going to bring in mental mm-hmm. evidence, they said, no, we need to sit down and have her examined. And then mm-hmm. her attorneys objected immediately to this, and the judge overruled it. And oh. overruled that objection to the psychologist examination. Huh. But, you know, that's the basic rules of the court. If you want to bring in evidence of a mental defect or defect, however you want to say it, Mm-hmm. You have to be examined by a court-ordered special psychiatrist or mental health expert. You can't just say, oh, my client is pleading insanity and have no no one examine her, no one qualified. Right. Well, and sometimes they're like the defense will have their own expert witness testify as right. well. Like they'll have like they'll have the government's um, psychologist and psychiatrist um, analyze her. And then they'll, the defense will have their own that they'll I bring usually in do. as well. Like I would I wouldn't. I think yeah. that it was a normal process if the defense and the prosecution both didn't have their witnesses. That's the way it works in the court system. Right. So that you can have an objective opinion to bring to the jury on both ends. Because the the person that's yeah. testifying for the defense is always going to be stilted towards the defense, nine times out of ten. They're always yeah. going to be... They're, ch- I mean, they're, they're, they're being paid by the defense. So that they can make mm-hmm. their, their client look the best. But in any case, what they brought mm-hmm. was this woman. They said they're going to use her as their expert. And her name is Mindy Mechanic. Badass name, by the way. Mindy Mechanic. This is the... The specialist for the defense. Defense for the... Go- okay. And basically, Mindy she's going to offer up proof for Elizabeth Holmes. But she specializes in psychosocial consequences of violence, trauma, victimization including violence against women, and she usually testifies in cases involving interpersonal violence. That's, like, what her website says hmm. as far as what she specializes in. Um, Holmes also had her mental state discussed in a sealed court trial or hearing 
the, the documents for that were sealed, as I just mentioned. Um, that was July 8th at the hearing, and it was a closed hearing. So they're really keeping this one super right. quiet. But both Holmes and Ramesh Balwani have pled not guilty, and they are charged with defrauding investors, doctors, and patients by false claims. They were basically, if you didn't listen to that episode, they were saying that they could do a whole bunch of diagnostic testing with just a single drop of blood or with just a few drops of blood. The company was once valued, Theranos that is, at $9 billion. Holmes' company was originally Jesus. founded in 2003 after she dropped out of Stanford, and the trial is on the docket for March 2021. Holmes and Balwani were originally indicted June 2018, hmm. and the cases are being handled separately for those two. Huh, okay, so... I wonder what she's going to say. Like she was physically abused That's what as I'm a child to figure out. or that Ramesh abused her or I, I just. I'm kind of thinking she might say Ramesh because they have separate trials. And if this defense expert. He was a lot older than her, too. Wasn't he like I think he was in his 50s right. when they started having an affair when she was 18. Right. So I feel like she might try to throw him under the right. bus. Right, and and the defense expert um, is she specializes in interpersonal abuse. So I'm wondering uh -huh. if that might be... And trauma and violence against right, women. Right, yeah. Because I, I would think if, she, if it were, like, a childhood thing, it would be child abuse. Interesting, right? Right? Like, the specialty would be be something with, like, childhood mood disorders or child abuse mm -hmm. or, like, post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that. But And those two did not part on good right. terms. There's dispute out there. She claims she fired him, and he claims he quit. So there's bad blood between them, as it is. So... I just wonder if she's not going to try to blame the whole thing on him. It could be like she was manipulative. Hmm. Yeah, like he physically abused her and like brainwashed her or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting, though. I'm I'm like, I read of it. The article, at first I kind of was like, yeah, she's going to claim insanity. But then it doesn't look that like that. It looks like she's going to claim that she was abused in some way and that impacted her ability to make rational decisions. But usually, and, and, and again, this is something you could probably speak to more, but usually that's offered in like a sentencing hearing, right? As a mitigating circumstance to lessen the sentence and not to, as a guilt or innocence situation. That's, it depends. Okay. It, I think that if you're going to bring up the insanity defense or no, insanity would be like impacted guilt your ability, or innocence, but then you have to bring it in the be in the beginning of the trial. Right, but like, but the abuse you have to bring like any witnesses you're planning on using. You have to bring anything that you're planning on using as a defense or okay. circumstance within the trial. You have to bring that into the in the beginning. Okay. And present your experts, present your evidence, present everything. You have to be upfront and provide that to the court. You cannot use it without doing that. Okay. So. You can bring it up again as a mitigating factor when you're talking about sentencing, but anything you want to use in that trial, you have to bring up in the beginning. I got you. So you can't just keep it in your pocket and be like, oh, wait, right. but there's this. Okay. I gotcha. And if you do, then that's grounds for appeal mm -hmm. because there's rules against hiding evidence or not revealing things in a timely manner to the court. So you could potentially get penalized mm -hmm. for that. Okay. But this is a federal trial too. Right. So um, the rules are slightly different, I believe. Um, in a federal trial versus this the state trial right. for a criminal proceeding, but it's it's interesting. We'll we'll keep you guys posted on new updates when they come out on yeah, this because sure. I'm, I'm sure this is going to be like <laughs> it's going to be a circus. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. I feel like with this one and with the Lori Vallow. I mean, it's, oh yeah, because that's so, going to be March for Elizabeth Holmes and then April for Lori Vallow if they both go to trial when yep. they're supposed to. So. 
Could be an interesting spring. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sure. And I'm curious as to whether they're going to end up being in-person trials Mm -hmm. or whether they're going to end up being, you know, computerized or Zoom trials or whatever. So, yeah, we'll we'll keep you guys posted. Yeah. Um, Main case for the day. This is a good one. Darce, you're going to like this. When I heard this case immediately, I thought about you and I was like, oh, this is going to be a good one. Ooh, okay. Okay. 52-year-old Peter Parco worked as a clerk for the Supreme Court of New York State. Okay. He works with an appeals judge. Okay, so... It's a, a position where you help them write the papers that they do. You do research. You, you know, do all kinds of things within the court. He had a legal background. I'm not sure. It doesn't say whether he was an attorney or what, but he had been in the legal field for a number of years and decided to end his career working for this appeals judge. And it's a very prestigious position. Mm-hmm. If you are in the legal field, it's something that you aim for. I haven't heard of someone ending their career as a clerk. Usually you start your career as a right. clerk for the court, and then you go in and you end up being an attorney and a judge and all those kinds of things. But in any case, it was still a prestigious position for him, and he enjoyed his job and did a good job at it. And... That is until November 15th, 2004, when he didn't show up to work. And this is New York in the fall, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, beautiful time of the year. And Peter was very, very reliable. And so when he didn't show up, his coworkers were immediately concerned. And this is like Albany, right? Because it's the Supreme Court for New York? Right, right. Okay. So there could have been snow by that time, I suppose. But his um, employer sent a, one of the... um, court officers out to his house to go check on him because they were worried about Peter and they got to the house in Delmar, New York, which is where this guy lived. And they saw signs that something had happened at the house, something bad at the front of the house. There was a single key in the front door and the door is partially open. So it's so not like, like a key on a keychain where you've the got one you put keys, under the, the doormat. Like your yeah, extra key? Or like a plant or whatever. So that's immediately what he thinks. Mm. And there's blood on the cement below, on mm. the tiles. The door is partially open, and he pushes the door in, and there's a lot of blood, and to the right of the door is a body. Ooh. He immediately recognizes the body as Peter Porco, and Peter had been bludgeoned to death with an axe that belonged to the family. Whoa. So for those of you who don't know what the word bludgeon means, I know Darcy does, but um, it basically means to club, beat, bash, hit, slam, strike, batter, etc. till the person dies. It's physical abuse of a body with a heavy object until death. Hit with a heavy impact, sometime, something used to attack or bully, and there was a tremendously horrific scene, a lot of blood. When you're attacking someone with mm-hmm. an axe, I don't think it's ever going to be a clean right. sight, but... He goes upstairs, and Peter's wife, Joan Porco, is in the master bedroom, still clinging to life, with a three-foot axe next to her body. What? So the axe wasn't downstairs. I don't know if I implied that, but it it was an axe attack, and the axe was upstairs next to Joan, the wife. The scene was so gruesome that the paramedics couldn't find her mouth to put the oxygen mask on. Holy moly. That's how bad it was. And they immediately take Joan to the nearest hospital and start life-saving measures because she is basically clinging to life. Um, Police get to work and start examining the blood splatter analysis. And they say that Joan was struck three times. Mm -hmm. So somebody must have hit her extremely hard Mm -hmm. for three to do that kind of damage. But the attack was clearly on her face and head. Right. And they had struck Peter 16 times. Jesus. 
It was determined that both were struck while they were in bed sleeping. And presumably these two were struck with the same axe because, you know, it's not like there's going to be multiple axes on the scene. And both had been attacked with an axe. They were were both sleeping in the bed, but he was downstairs? When they were attacked. Okay. But the police are perplexed because Pete was downstairs when they found him. So it's evident that he was struck 16 times in the bedroom, but, like, why was he downstairs? So they're, they're like, trying to figure this out. Now, here's the creepy part that you're just going to, like, get into, I know. But sometime after the attack, Peter regained consciousness and started doing the things that he normally did each morning. No. Pulled on clothes over his injury and started walking around the house. Okay, so here's what they think scientifically happened, that the top part of his brain, the neocortex, controls higher functions like thought, language, and reasoning. This was damaged or even possibly cut off by the axe attack. The paleocortex, which is the part of the brain that is farther down in the skull, that part controls primal instincts, second nature habits, etc. And this part wasn't damaged or wasn't damaged as severely and was still functional. So essentially, think of that movie with Hannibal Lecter where uh-huh. he cuts the top of the skull off his victim and is like eating and the guy mm-hmm. is like completely like functional and like still talking and stuff. But this is the horrifying explanation for as to why after this axe attack, Peter's downstairs because he got up, he made breakfast and did the same activities that he did every morning, all while he was bleeding out of this mortal wound on the top of his head. And he was unaware that he was wounded. Blood showed that he went out to get the paper even and the front door closed behind him and locked. So he went to get the key from the flower pot and opened the front door and went back inside and then died. No shortly after that. He perished. So (laughs) it's just like, oh my God. Can you imagine how creepy that would be? How much time do they think passed between the attack and when he died? Maybe an hour, possibly shorter than that. They don't really have an exact estimate. They can pinpoint the time that he died, but they assume that the attack happened early in the morning, right? And he regained consciousness around the time that he did these things in the morning because they didn't discover the bodies until like eight or nine o'clock the next morning. So it had to have been just an hour, maybe two, that he was still alive and walking around doing these things in the morning. Imagine but, like being the neighbor and like right, looking outside and see, I mean, obviously nobody did see that because they would have called the police, but like, imagine and you see this mangled dude. He was attacked 16 his times paper. in his head with an ax. Unbelievable. Yeah. So the police grab Joan Porco before she goes into surgery because she was still conscious as well. Mm-hmm. And they ask her if she knew who attacked her and she shook her head. And then they start asking her, well, who was it? You know, was mm-hmm. it so-and-so? Because she's not, I think, able to make full sentences, but mm-hmm. she's able to understand and shake her head and show them that she's acknowledging what they're saying. Yes, and no they ask her if basically. her son, yeah, yeah, yeah. They asked her if her son Christopher did it and she shook her head yes. <sighs> Now, Christopher is a 21-year-old son of Joan and Peter. And they're immediately like, okay, we've got to go check this guy out. Because, you know, she's conscious enough Mm -hmm. and coherent enough to be able to tell us that this guy did it. So we need to go check him out. And the medical examiners quickly figure out that Peter Porco was the intended target of the victim's accident or the vicious Mm -hmm. axe attack. Because he was struck 16 times versus Joan being struck only three 
and nothing was missing from their home, which ruled out robbery or burglary gone wrong. So the only motive that seemed plausible was someone who was angry with the family for some reason. And it was somebody who didn't need to use the spare key to get in because they know that Peter uses the key. So it was somebody who already had a means to enter the house. Hmm. Right. So Peter and Joan had two sons. I mentioned Christopher, the 21-year-old, but they also have 23-year-old Jonathan Porco, who's a lieutenant in the Navy serving on a nuclear sub. Okay. So he was out. Like, he alibied mm-hmm. out because he was hundred of, hundreds of miles away on this nuclear sub, right? Christopher Porco was enrolled at the University of Rochester, which was about three hours away from their home in Del Mar. Okay. Both sons had alibis, though, for the night in question. But, you know, if this was the case, then why had Joan pointed the finger at her son Christopher? That doesn't make any sense to them. They're like, why would she point him out if he wasn't actually there? Christopher, meanwhile, claims he heard about the attack from a news reporter... And says, you know, I wasn't anywhere near the house. I'm fully cooperative. You know, I'll give you a DNA sample. Whatever you need, I'm there to help. Mm -hmm. And they look at him and examine his body because oftentimes they'll do that with someone who's a suspect. Look at them for signs of struggle Mm -hmm. or bruising or scratching or blood or whatever. Or cuts from the weapon used or anything like that. Yeah. 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 Because oftentimes when you're doing an attack that's that brutal and that violent, sometimes you'll hurt yourself Mm -hmm. or somebody will fight back. And so there'll be signs that there was a struggle and there were none Hmm. on Christopher Porco. Three weeks later, Joan Porco miraculously regains consciousness and she backtracks. She's like, wait, 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 wait. Christopher wasn't responsible. I don't know what I said Mm -hmm. before. I don't remember anything, but I know Christopher didn't do it. And she made a public support in or a public statement in support of her son. She was positive that he had no involvement in the case, and there was absolutely no forensic evidence at that point to imply that Christopher was involved in any way in this crime. And they start looking through Christopher's Jeep right after the crime as well for blood, clothing, anything to show that he was possibly involved in the attack, and they find nothing. So basically the only reason they're looking at him is because his mom made this statement when she was... severely injured and then once she's recovered or recovering she backtracks so there's really no reason to look at him anymore right but they had to fully sure look at the evidence anyway to rule him out and they looked at the highway on the night of the attack between the school and home because there were a lot of tolls and Mm. things like that so there would have been some evidence of him and there would have been cameras and things like that because We all know that usually people are caught on camera a certain number Mm -hmm. of times. And especially if you're traveling on highways and and roadways, they have all that. Mm -hmm. And there are a ton of tolls in between Christopher's school and Del Mar, New York. And Christopher has an easy pass, which is an electronic toll payment. Mm -hmm. And that would show history if he had passed through the tolls. Right, it would track every time. There was no history. Hmm. Nothing was found on the axe either, besides the victim blood and fingerprints. So blood of the parents was on the axe. No fingerprints, no nothing besides the parents. Okay? Okay. Now, they dig a little bit deeper, though, and find that Peter Porco had received a death threat. And the man who did this death threat had lost custody of his kids after a case that went before the New York Supreme Court and he had vowed revenge to kill the judge and Peter Porco. That's weird that a clerk, it seems weird that a clerk would get a death threat. Right? It seems just bizarre to me. It seems weird that you'd even know the clerk on on your case. Yeah. I I don't know why that happened, but Mm. in any case, this guy ended up having an alibi and so they ruled him out. Mm. Jesus. Then they get an anonymous letter 
sent to the local paper by Peter's alleged killer. And it describes killing Peter and jo- and trying to kill Joan. And he wants everyone to know that he'll definitely kill again and tells them that they're disrespecting him by going after easy suspects, quote unquote. He's basically telling them, catch me if you can. So he's... This is like a serial killer in the making. Like he's saying, I didn't have a, like a, I didn't know these people. I just killed them at random and I'm going to kill again kind of a thing. He's implying that. Yes. Right. Okay. There's no fingerprints or DNA on the letter. They immediately analyzed for that and found nothing. Mm -hmm. So this guy knows what he's doing. Like he's clearly covered his tracks. There's also a relative of Peter's that's involved with organized crime. And he's had some run-ins with the police and he's currently in federal custody. His name is Frank Porco. And he's known as Frankie the Fireman Porco. The the Fireman. fireman. (laughs) I don't know why, but... um, I'm assuming because he's set fires to kill people, but... (laughs) Right? Maybe. Um, But he's serving time in federal prison for loan sharking. Mm. And police dig a little bit deeper and they see that this isn't a plausible suspect. Okay. So, what's left? What, What? Who else could it be? You know what I mean? A rando? They start looking at life insurance policies, which always oh. seem to come into play when a family member is involved, right? Yes. There is a $1 million <gasps> life insurance policy. Is it the Peter son Porco. on the sub? No. Oh, okay. Lo and behold, Christopher Porco was running around asking for investment advice right before the attack. Oh, what a little Menendez he is. He went to a financial advisor. I know, right? How convenient, right? He went to a financial advisor and asked them to write up a portfolio for him and told this person he was about to get millions of dollars from a relative. How stupid can you be? (laughs) Right. Police start digging through emails and electronic evidence. And again, this was, I believe, Mm -hmm. 2004. So this was still there. And we're not, you know, we weren't Mm -hmm. before the time of emails, but they could see that Christopher had emailed his parents on numerous occasions, on numerous occasions prior to their deaths, asking for personal information as well as financial information. He wanted their social security numbers, driver's license numbers, etc. Claimed that he needed them for financial aid paperwork so in college. He, so, but he was really taking out life insurance policies on his parents? Um, no, they had the policy on their own. But he was taking out loans oh. in their names. Fraudulently. And getting money, he also financed the Jeep with their names and without <gasps> getting any permission from them. So he's getting money by fra- claiming that they he's them and signing papers with their name and he has right. all their personal information so he's able to do that and he's spending a ton wow. of money the next part of this is the porcos also have a home security system and it was deactivated the night of the attack so they go to the security company to see how it had been deactivated and evidence showed that it, someone had been known by the family had to have been the one to do that because the alarm was deactivated at 2 a.m., and they had used the master code for this, and only the family had the master code. Mm, okay. So it had to have been So that, that narrowed down, narrows down the time of the attack, too. Exactly. And police start looking back at Chris, because he's the other brother's been on a freaking nuclear sub. You can't, mm-hmm. like, you can't lie about that. Like, the Navy is legit about their people on, nu- on nuclear Mm-hmm. areas right there the security for that sort of thing is extremely tight so he wouldn't be able to just bail from a nuclear sub come inland because he was out on the sub oh he and, was actually underway yes okay. yes 
Okay, so Christopher claimed he was 220 miles away, innocently sleeping in his dorm room. So they start looking at security video again, and the campus, the highway between the Porco home, and anything that might be an area where he would have had to go in his yellow Jeep was looked at and screened meticulously. They want to try to find that yellow Jeep because it's pretty distinctive. God, we loved yellow cars in the early 2000s, didn't we? Seriously. <laughs> just, and it's crazy because I'm going to get into that in just a second. But this is how pervasive cameras are now. The average individual out there gets caught on some sort of camera 18 to 20 times per day. Can you believe that? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so it's gas stations, it's roadways, it's schools, it's buildings, 18 yeah. to 20 times a day. Is that updated for 2020 or was that in 2004? Uh, I believe this was in 2004. Jesus. So it's so probably even more now. This today. <laughs> right? And I got a lot of this from a Forensic Files episode, although there was a mm. ton of articles about this case online as well. So I Ooh. read through a bunch of them and got some additional information. But at 10.30 p.m., they see a yellow Jeep leaving campus. And it's at the University of Rochester where Christopher attends. And the security alarm was deactivated approximately three and a half hours later at 2.14 oh. p.m. Interesting. time. Uh-huh. So the phone line was then cut at 4.59 a.m. God, how long was he in the house? Then the same yellow Jeep. Oh, my God. I'll get there. <laughs> the same yellow Jeep comes back onto campus three and a half hours later at 8.30 a.m. This makes the timeline fit together right. perfectly. But they just have to prove now that it was Christopher in the Jeep. Because he could claim, hey, somebody stole my car, right. or that wasn't me, or that wasn't my Jeep. There's um, there's actually a lot more yellow God. Jeeps <laughs> than you would actually think there were. We loved a yellow car in the early 2000s, man. <laughs> Police estimate that there were thousands of yellow Jeeps in New York during Jesus. this time period. <laughs> and so they start running the Jeep images through a computer designed to pinpoint specific details like mud on doors, uh -huh. parking stickers, bumper stickers, dents, damage, etc. Because those are things that you can use to pinpoint specifically right. what car it is. But the images taken were compared to the images of Christopher's Jeep. So the images of the vehicle that passed out through campus and then went mm -hmm. along the roadway and then came back. They took images of that and compared it to Christopher's Jeep pictures taken right after the attack. And lo and behold, the images were an exact match. Hmm. But... They still couldn't identify the driver. Right. Yeah. So forensic analysts showed Christopher's Jeep, or excuse me, forensic analysis showed Christopher's Jeep leaving the campus of the University of Rochester approximately four hours before the axe attack. So he has about three and a half, four hours to get there. And then he returned 10 hours after leaving. So the attack had to have happened. He had to have stopped for gas somewhere. Jeeps get terrible gas mileage. He did. But they didn't focus on that per se because that wasn't as important. Oh, okay. Because they caught him leaving campus and coming back. So they figured that was enough. But right. the timeline matched up perfectly. They just needed to look up the New York roadway evidence and try to match that up as well to specifically pinpoint that it was Christopher in that vehicle. Right. So he would have had to traverse certain roads in order to get to his parents' home from school, and they believe this could help narrow down who was driving the yellow Jeep. There were no records of the Easy Pass being used, right? This mm -hmm. It's a little device that's inside of the car. Do they have that where you're at? We don't have tolls anywhere near like they have in the, in the north. But 
up here in my area as well, they have this little electronic box that you put like on your, you attach to your rear view mirror or windshield mm-hmm. or whatever, and it automatically charges through this electronic system when you go through any tolls. Right. So, but there weren't any, there wasn't any evidence of that being used, and they found it on the floor of Christopher's car when they inspected the car after the axe attack. Hmm. So they're like, okay, but then he could have just taken that off and paid cash. I mean, sure. you can pay cash when you go through the tolls. Well, you can't now because of COVID, which is interesting. Right. You have to pay everything online. They don't take any cash anymore. But back then, you could pay cash and you could bypass all that so that. But there's still you know, cameras, have right? Have... Yes. So police suspect that he paid the tolls with cash to avoid leaving evidence. But the problem was those lanes weren't monitored by video cameras. Unbelievable. Right? <sighs> And so they asked the toll collectors, they start interviewing these people to see if any of them remembered the yellow Jeep, which what are the odds that they would remember a freaking yellow Jeep? Like, I would be pretty discouraged at that point. But one of them actually remembered the yellow Jeep. I probably say, like, the odds are better than if it was like, do you remember the silver Honda? Like, a yellow Jeep is going to stand out more, but still, it's a a lot of cars probably going through. But there were thousands of them in New York at that time. So, but in any case... One of the toll attendants actually remembered the yellow Jeep. And she remembered it was right before quitting time around 11 p.m. But she didn't remember anything about the driver. But she remembered the yellow Jeep. Okay. So that freaking distinctive yellow Jeep. Yep. <laughs> Only about 12 cars passed through the drive or passed through the toll during that time. And police took, there were 12 tickets that were stamped with the time and sent them into the police. So when you did, did the toll, I guess you pull the ticket mm-hmm. out. And it has a specific time on it. You give it to the attendant. You pay. They take the ticket. They put it somewhere, collect it or whatever. And then you move on, Mm -hmm. which is not really how they do it here. Here, you just go to the the attendant. You can ask them for a receipt if you want it, but there's no ticket here. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I guess back then it was probably more like a parking garage. Yeah. You get like a ticket on the way out or something. That's what it seems, right? Which is very convenient because they grab these 12 tickets and they start looking for skin cells and prints and things like that on the tickets because, you know, what if you were sweating Mm -hmm. or whatever, it would show up on the ticket. And so the lab does mitochondrial DNA testing on the skin cells on all the tickets compared to Christopher's DNA. And one ticket comes up with Christopher Porco's DNA. Wow. Surprise, surprise, right? I mean, not all the tickets had DNA evidence on them. I believe only a couple of them did, and it just so happens that one of them had his. Wow. So investigators are narrowing in on him, and they believe that the sole motivation here was finances. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, Christopher had forged some bank loans amounting to about $31,000 without permission of his Mm. family. That's a lot of money. Yeah. There's also evidence that Joan and Peter knew about the money and they had emailed their son telling him, hey, you know, we're really disappointed in you. Don't do this. If you continue to screw up like this, we're going to get criminal mm-hmm. you know, prosecution involved and you're going to go to jail. So knock it off. Right. We love you. But like you're screwing up a lot lately. And he was also getting very poor grades in school and was spending a lot of money. He had bought the Jeep and other things that he couldn't afford. And things were coming to a head. And his parents had actually cut him off financially. There's always a trigger like that. Oh, God. And he was desperate. Right. Yeah. He was absolutely desperate. And murder was the only option for him, according to his thinking. Right. Surveillance video showed that he left campus at 1030. He removed the easy pass tag to cover his trail and paid cash for the toll. 
this left his sweet sweat on the DNA. Her sweet sweat. I put this left his sweet sweat DNA on the ticket. <laughs> that gave me the willies. Um, <laughs> he entered the home of his parents around 2 a.m., deactivated the security alarm with a, cold, with a code only known by family members. He then used an axe to attack his parents 16 times for the dad and three times for the mom God. and then left both of them to die. How brutal. He, right? Who can do that? I just, uh, to me, that is mind boggling. Mm-hmm. But he, then he smashed the security panel trying to cover his tracks because he, hmm. I think he realized that he had used that code that only he would know oh. and was like, oh crap, I've got to cover my tracks. Um, but the security code was still retained at the main site, mm-hmm. right? The main computer. And then he cut the phone lines around 4.59 a.m. and drove himself back to campus. So he attacked them at 2 and didn't leave until 5. He was there for three hours. So he cut the phone lines after the attack. Yeah. So he must have known that his mother was still alive. I am just completely baffled by all of that. But he arrived back on campus at 8.30 a.m. after this whole thing. And this... I just find the creepiest part of it, though, is Peter Porco waking up and doing all those normal morning activities and walking throughout the house, dripping blood everywhere before dying in the foyer. That's horrific. Like, it just, yeah. I just, to me, that that part, like, just really stuck with me. And they don't know when he would have woken up, but assume it would have been after Christopher had left, right? I mean. Yeah. Christopher attacked them at 2 a.m., so it had to have been sometime between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., but, that, but Christopher didn't leave but before 5. Oh, no. Sorry. It had to have been between 5 a.m. and 8.30. Right. Okay. Right. Wow. After 5 a.m., they discovered him around 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. So it had to have been in that three-hour window that he got wow. into all that. Police never did discover what happened to Christopher's bloody clothes or why, joint, or why Joan Porco pointed to her son and then retracted. But doctors say that people can often lose their memory around the time of a, of an attack on their head, mm-hmm. a head injury that it's pretty common for people to lose memory during and around yeah. that time period. I had a friend in undergrad who was in a terrible car accident, like somebody on the freeway, he was going northbound, somebody on the freeway going southbound, like came over the median and like flipped yeah. and landed on top of his car, like landed on top of his car. Oh my God. And, um, he was in the hospital for a really long time. He doesn't remember any of it. Which I guess is like, yeah, thankful, but yeah. Yeah. So she remembered at the time of that, but then, you know, after she had the surgery and the reconstruction Mm -hmm. and everything, she didn't remember anything. So they say that's normal. Mm -hmm. One year after the attack, Christopher Porco went to trial for murder and attempted murder. His mother had a ton of surgery to fix the injuries and repair her face. There's pictures of her online and uh, I have to say it, she, it, it looks horrific. She looks like, they did a lot of work to try to help her, but mm-hmm. evidently she lost an eye, part of her skull, and suffered severe facial disfigurement. Mm. To me, it's, like, who could do that to their parents? Like, you see pictures of her, and you just feel like she looks like a severe attack victim. Like, she right. looks like she's been attacked with right. an axe in her face. Like, she, it, it's horrific. Mm. And the thought that her son did this is, like, the worst part about it, but... As the jury is starting to hear all these facts, they start to hear story after story after story of the people that are getting pulled in that are saying Christopher was a sociopath, a liar, and had just done so many terrible things. He had previously worked at a vet clinic job where he learned to clean up blood. Mm -hmm. So they believe that that was how he learned to cover his tracks, no blood in the car, get rid of his bloody clothes. 
um, people started to come forward saying that he had failed out of college, that he had forged transcripts to get back in. Wow. And there was also stories of his long history of antisocial behavior. He had burglarized his own family home multiple times, including 2003, 2002, and 2005, where he'd stolen computers and sold them on eBay. Mm. And they actually tracked the computers down through eBay. He had been using his account and his brother's account, and he would sell the items multiple times and not deliver and so they shut his account mm-hmm. down and they started looking back and finding all this stuff these patterns and he had actually used the money that his parents had given him for tuition and bought a bunch of crap and then he had forged those documents to get more money saying he needed money for tuition and his father called him and is like hey why isn't the tuition paid and he basically told his parents that they had misplaced his final examination so the school was paying his tuition Oh, my gosh. Like, he was just lie after lie after lie. This guy was just, like, a pathological liar. Like, he was so talented at just lying and believing it that, like, they're starting to, like, unravel this long, long history of this kid just being extremely troubled and just long criminal history. Like, he was just a ticking time bomb. You know, all of that effort he put into lying and covering his tracks and failing out of school and then getting the loans and doing this, that, and the other, if he had just, like, put that effort into studying, like, he could have not, I mean, I just don't understand, like, the effort some people put into doing the wrong thing when you can, when it's so much easier to just do the right thing. Exactly. And one of the saddest parts about this whole thing is that the mom, like, stood by her son the Mm. whole time. And just kept saying, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Even after the jury found him guilty, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison, max. Mm -hmm. His mother still believes he's innocent. She was stunned and shocked, and she has not made a single public statement about it since the trial, but it appears that she has stood by her son. Wow. Which is absolutely bonkers. It's so sad. Um, He was... Yeah. Yeah. It is to me. And August 10th, 2006 was when the jury found him guilty of second degree murder and attempted murder. He was sentenced to the 50 years, December 12th, 2006. He will be eligible for parole December 2052. And he is currently serving time at Clinton Correctional Facility. I believe that's a favorite uh, reference of Tupac. I was going to say, yeah, like Tupac was there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All of his appeals have also been rejected to date. Interesting that he was convicted of second-degree murder. Yeah. Um, Interesting, Hmm. right? Um, Very, very bizarre case to me. Like, I think that fit into, like, all the little details in this just fits into, like, the description of our podcast. (laughs) Right, yes, for sure. Crazy little bizarre things that were involved in it. And, like, there's a lot of info out there on this case, believe it or not. I was looking through articles online, and there's pictures, and the pictures of him and his father and family together and the mother before and after, and he's a handsome guy. Like, he didn't right. need to do all this. He probably could have had a pretty successful, normal career if he would have just focused some of that insane energy on good rather than evil. Yeah, that's just, that's so sad. It's crazy that there's so much out there. I hadn't heard about this before. It's a bonkers case. And they tried to make a movie, I believe Uh they made a movie. It was like a a made-for-TV movie about it as well. Mm -hmm. And he tried to block that from coming out. Prejudicial. um, Saying that it was, you know, discriminatory or whatever, that they couldn't do it. And yeah, it didn't get blocked. They still ended up making it. So 
there have been quite a few shows as well that have talked about this particular case, believe it or not. I think there was like um, CSI or hmm. something like that where they used it as a reference. But I just can't imagine being a child that would be that bonkers to go after his own parents yeah, I and mean, kill them with an axe. For real. For Lizzie real, Borden Lizzie style. Borden style. But he was convicted. The brutality and the the, the complete strength it, that it would take to kill somebody with an axe just to me just blows me away and they didn't die uh, like right away. right away i mean his mom didn't die at all but like he didn't he woke up like 16 attacks i just can't imagine getting to the point where you feel like the only option you have is to kill your parents the people right. that birthed you and created you <sighs> I, yeah, I mean, I like I don't even I don't even think I could try to get into kind of that mindset. Like, that's just I, I can't even get there. Like, I just can't even get there. It's just insanity. It's like the definition of being an insane person. Right. Being a sociopath, a cuckoo. Right. Like my parents always like I've always known and my parents have always like told me time and time again, like doesn't matter what it is doesn't matter how bad you think it is you can always come to us so like I can't even get into the mindset of thinking that I couldn't go to my parents without a problem like about a problem that they that they could we couldn't work out you know what I mean like I just and can you imagine being the parents who are just like we know our kid has problems we're trying to work with them we've told him numerous times and there's emails that you can see that they wrote online where they were like hey we know you're having a hard time right now we know you're doing bad things but you know what we still love you right like of course please know that we still love you we want to help you we want nothing but for you to succeed in life and it's just can you imagine like you would never think that your child would do something like that Uh, yeah and that poor mom gosh I just can't imagine. I mean, she she obviously has, yeah, she obviously has to have, you know, severe long-term lasting, um, you know, brain damage from that type of head injury. And I just... Physical, mental, mm-hmm. emotional scarring for life in that kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. I just can't... That's awful. ...imagine what kind of pain and suffering that poor woman has been through. Right. But the biggest thing for me on this case that drew my attention was him getting up and the father get Peter Porco getting up and walking Mm -hmm. around the house and doing those daily chores. To me, that was just, it just creeped me out. Have you heard of Phineas Gage? Yes. The story of Phineas Gage. It that's kind of reminded me of that. I mean, obviously his was not his was an accident on the railroad track, but like, and was like normal, relatively normal. It changed his personality. That was that was what I was going to get into about the brain. Like the brain is fascinating, and it like it's so adaptable. And that's just like if he hadn't have had the injuries to where he had bled out. Like, Mm -hmm. do you think he could have survived? I mean, it just. Yeah, it's entirely possible. As long as he had the, as long as the part of the brain that that was responsible for, um, well, like his brainstem and cerebellum, that's responsible for heartbeat and 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 respiration and things like that. As long as that was intact, yeah, he could have survived. I don't, you know, the quality of life conversation would have been something different, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he could have physically lived had he not bled out. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, and, and the reason that I brought this up and thought that you'd be so interested was because of the elements of the brain injury mm-hmm. that um, you tend to be... It's in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, that's so. a super fascinating. I'm going to go read the crap out of all that. <laughs> all those yeah, references yeah, good, that, that good you use. I'm going to have to go read all of those. 
Yeah, I believe there's a Wikipedia page on it, and then there's probably, Sweet. I don't know, 30 articles out there. on ver- And oh I looked gosh. at all of them that I could find because I wanted to like find some additional details because initially I heard about this on a Forensic Files episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, let me just reference it real quick. It was Family Ties. Mm. I believe it came out September 2nd on Forensic Files. And so I was fascinated by it at that point, and I started looking through articles online to try to find additional details because Forensic Files is awesome. Yeah. They're very succinct, but sometimes they leave out some of the little kooky side details and things like that like the story about all the people coming forward to say he was a sociopath Mm -hmm. and he had a history of lying and he burglarized the house and he had this criminal history prior to the the killing of his parents and things like that they didn't talk about that Mm -hmm. on forensic files and i wanted to know those things and it was just really just put it together in a big bow for me into like a totally fascinating case wow so we're gonna wrap it up unless you have anything else you want to add i don't that was crazy yeah (laughs) well in that case, please join us. Wait, damn it. <laughs> I was doing so good. <laughs> if, you have any que- if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email. We're at the podcast at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to suggest we do, corrections, any of that, we're more than happy to chat with you, address those things via email, um, social media, Darcy. Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So we will post um, links to the show and show notes and everything like that. And um, that's where we'll provide info and updates and pictures and all that good stuff. All right. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.